Greetings, troubled listeners, and welcome back to the Troubled Men podcast. I am Renee Komen, sitting in my safe house on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. Hey, buddy. What's happening? Oh, you know, uh, trying to keep my head above water here. Uh, had a, uh, a busy week since, uh, since we last spoke, as I was telling you, uh, my son was just about to graduate, uh, from Tulane. And in fact, he did graduate from Tulane. Oh, and now he's, he's, he's going, uh, taking a year off, right? He's doing something like that. Or? He's going to go to, uh, to Ireland and work on a farm for a period of time and travel around Europe. He's got friends who are going to be uh, different spots in, in Europe uh, for their summer plans. So he's, what the hell uh, does he want to work on a farm for, man? Well, you know, I guess uh, just see something different. Uh, you know, uh, he's never been to Ireland. I've never been to Ireland, but uh, I'd love to go. It sounds beautiful. So, so he's going to do that and, uh, you know, see the countryside, uh, meet some other young people. Um, so we had a... Uh, had the went to the commencement there at uh, the the stadium outdoor stadium at, at Tulane. They had a socially distanced uh, graduation. Uh, had a slight slight misting on us. It was a little bit rainy that day, but uh, uh, made out okay. And uh, then we had uh, a gathering of uh, in the backyard of family and uh, some of his classmates and their their families who are in town for graduation so it's uh it's has he ever been on a farm before um uh, i mean i mean because if you work on a farm you got to get up like at 5 a.m what the hell does he want to do that for yeah well it's uh you know he's uh he's a hard worker he's not somebody who's afraid of uh getting into something and and uh, he should be fucking women right now well, lots and lots of women well, uh, you not know, the farm he should be out there fucking well, there, women. there might might be some women on the farm manny so uh, well there's know. gonna be pigs and cows i know that and probably some sheep well uh, i don't, I don't want him doing that you well, know no 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 of course not but you know uh, yeah, I think there's going to be plenty of uh, plenty of, of females. You think there's going to be a farmer's goes. daughter? Uh, I I don't know, man. It's uh, you know, uh, Daniel is not a kid that has to uh, struggle for uh, for friends, and uh, he he seems to pick them up wherever he goes. So he's 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 going to be fine. All right. So how's your week going, Manny? Oh, uh, it's the same as every other week. Uh, you know, I, I wake up screaming. Right. I. Uh, Go to work. I punch in, punch out, come home. You know, I don't. I'm not going out there, man. Right. I'm afraid. I'm yeah. Afraid. I, I was. I'm I, a, I was afraid before COVID. I'm still <laughs> afraid. You know? I'm afraid to go. I don't. I don't. I mean, this city is just. What are you afraid of, Manny? I'm afraid of getting killed. Ah, like, you, know, you know, road that's... rage, a road rage incident, or mm. you know, just some random person. I'm, you know, at the supermarket, some random person just walks in and starts killing people. Man. Yeah, I don't, I don't see that. That's too much of a danger, you know. Uh, I think probably just uh, getting in your shower is probably more dangerous than any of those. Uh, well, that's activities. dangerous too. Uh, yeah. But also, you know, it's this state's crazy. Uh, I heard, and I didn't know this, but this is legal in East Baton Rouge is for the cops to just grab people off the streets and say, you're doing jury duty right now. Get in. Hmm, really? You hear they about can, this? They can press you into service, like, sh- like the old Shanghai kind of deal? 
it's it's a legal thing in East Baton Rouge where a judge says, wait a minute, we don't have enough jurors. Sheriffs, go get some jurors right now. And they just, I mean, there was a big story. I don't know if you read it. It came out like a few days ago. No, and, I didn't and, see that. Yeah, well, because you wait for the paper to come. Well, you know, if, you, if you just had, if you had instant access to news, you would hear about the well, stuff. Well, no, I, I, I have that. I, 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 I look at that. I have a, a busy schedule, so I don't always get to uh, to scan all of the, the online uh, news services. But well, anyway, apparently, it's legal uh, okay. for a judge just to tell the the sheriffs to go out and get jurors. And this poor woman was on her way to work, and she noticed uh, uh, all these people crowded around a Starbucks. And she saw the sheriff, and the sheriff, she asked the sheriff, she said, a deputy, she said, what's going on here? And the deputy said, have you ever, uh, uh, have you, are you from East Baton Rouge? And she said, yes. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? She said, no. Come with me. And hmm. they just brought her to a courthouse and made her be on a jury. You know? Okay. I well. mean, uh, uh, that's kind of crazy if you ask me. It's yeah. like Soylent Green. Get on the bus. Right. Yeah. You know? Seems like they'd, they'd have a you know a supply of, of jurors. Although, of course, a lot of people try to get out of it. But you know, it's you have a lot. How many how many jurors do you need? You got a whole parish full of people that registered to vote. Well, apparently, no one was showing up, and this judge says, you know, I mean, apparently, a sheriff was quoted as saying, "You're going to find him guilty or innocent, no matter what." Now get in, you know. <laughs> so it's crazy going nuts out there. All right. Yeah. Well, well, uh, you know, and she was screaming like, "I got to get my kid, pick up my kid from school later." And he was like, "Who cares? Get in the car." Wow. You know, so that's crazy. You know, just you know. Now I've never done jury duty. Never in my life have I done jury duty. Okay. I mean, being from Los Angeles, you know, you get these notices to, to be at jury duty, but there's nine million people in LA. It's like I don't want to go to jury duty. You know, so you just you just throw the you throw the notice in the trash and, you know, you wait, you know, you're just like, uh, right. Do you think they would seat you on a jury here, here now, Manny? You think that would, uh, they would, uh, I, I have no idea. You, you, you have, you are a registered voter now, which you, yes, you I have been a, a registered time. voter for 20 years here in this city, but hmm. I've never been asked to be on a jury. Huh? Okay. Well, uh, I guess uh, maybe you have that to look forward to in your future. They'll be tapping you for your to perform your civic duty. And, well, yeah, uh, maybe. Sit I in judgment so. of your fellow man. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, let's hope. I mean, I, I've never done it, so uh, maybe I never will, and that could be. That's cool too. I mean, right. Who wants to? You know, who wants to have to go downtown or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Park, I, I, and then have to go through the screening process and. Right. Have to sit in a room and all that stuff. Ooh, I don't need that. Right. Yeah, I've, I've, I've never done it myself because I always had a relative working in uh, the criminal justice system. So I, I knew that I would be uh, disqualified anyway. They wouldn't they wouldn't ever seat me. So I, I avoided even going and, and uh, you know, going through the uh, the, the charade of, uh, of, of trying to be seated. Good. Well, good. I mean, who wants to be bothered with it? I mean, to me, they're all guilty. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) If if they already arrested you, you must have done something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, a lot lot of people have that attitude. You know, I saw something about Tulane. Uh, You know, we were 
Uh, we've been talking about the vaccination rates and, and how the, the rates of vaccination are falling, but we're, we're trying to get everyone uh, to, to comply. And now Tulane, you know, a few weeks ago, they had uh, a thing in New Orleans where they were offering uh, 10 pounds of crawfish to anyone who would come and get vaccinated. So maybe some they had some takers there. But I see Tulane now is offering a $500 bonus to any employee yeah. who gets vaccinated. Yeah. It's a good thing, yeah. You know, five hundred bucks. Who wouldn't say no to that, man? Right, right. Well, yeah. if, if if that's what it takes, I mean, it seems like being safe and and uh, you know not being exposed to a deadly disease would be enough incentive on its own. But uh, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, I'm actually going out of town uh, in the next few days to uh, the state of Ohio and Oregon because they're having. If you get a vaccine, you have a chance to win the state Powerball. You know, they're giving Powerball. They're giving you your own Powerball numbers. Huh. So, so you're, uh, you're, uh, you're traveling around. You're doing some Yeah, uh, I'm going to go to Ohio and Oregon because not enough people are getting vaccinated there. And they're offering, they're saying, you know, come to our state and you have a chance to win the Powerball. So I'm going to go get a, I'll get a third and a fourth shot. Okay. <laughs> and have a chance to win those state lotteries. So I'm all into that, man. All right, well, it's, it's, that's good. a gamble I'll take, you know. Okay, I'll well, good, good, good luck with that. Good luck with that. You know, um, so that's all good. And uh, uh, other than that, everything's been the same. You know, I'm, uh, uh, I am what I am, and uh, I'm looking back at this stuff. I'm doing a lot of uh, work around the house. Okay. You know, um, I've uh, we've uh, we've done some. Uh, we bought some new furniture and we've done some stuff to, uh, you know, make the house look nicer. And my daughter just looks at us and says, why are you trying to make it so fancy? And I said, what the hell are you talking about? I mean, look at your room. Your room's a landfill. I've got to make the rest of the house fancy. Because if you look in this girl's room, it's like fucking, it's like, uh, you ever see that movie out of the blue with Dennis Hopper? Mm, perhaps. Uh, came out in like 1979. He's a he's a pedophile, and okay. uh, his daughter, who is who, who he's raping, uh, stabs him in the back with a pair of scissors and okay. uh, kills her. But there's a great scene where he's wandering through a landfill, drinking and playing with all the seagulls in the landfill. It's a very touching scene. Hmm. Touching yeah, no, I can't scene. can't say that I've seen that. But oh uh, uh, yeah, well you can maybe YouTube it or something. Okay. But anyway, that's it. Nothing else is really going on. I mean, I, I'm just doing what I'm doing. Uh, let's get to our guest because uh, he's exciting to me, and uh, uh, I got a lot of questions for him. Sure, sure. Well, excellent. Okay. Well, uh, yes, a fellow I've known for, for many years here. I first met him when I was uh, playing up in, in D.C. with the Iguanas, and, and uh, he was, he'd been living there for many years, and, and we would play many shows together. He's, uh, he's a, a giant of guitar players. He's a guitar player, singer, songwriter, band leader, uh, original member of Commander Cody's Lost Planet Airmen, who's, uh, who's Hot Rod Lincoln, uh, you know, uh, crashed through the top 10 and, and blew open uh, American Roots music for the radio. He's, uh, he's a titan of the Telecaster, king of D Diesel Billy, Without further ado, the great Mr. Bill Kirchin. Welcome, Bill. Wow, that's 
I'm going to have a lot of trouble living up to that buildup. Thank you, Renee. God dang, I, I should have had a double espresso here instead of a single. But thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. And uh, nice to meet you, Manny. And nice to, uh, if not see, at least hear you again, Renee. Man, well, uh, thank you so much, Bill. You know, I, 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 uh, I'm always looking for guests. And this last uh, Jazz Fest season, when we obviously didn't have a, a festival, you know, WWOZ will have this festing in place where they'll play recordings from previous Jazz Fests. Yeah. And uh, I'm listening to the radio. We had it playing all day. And I hear uh, a guitar player going through, uh, uh, like, the history of, of rock guitar licks. And, and I'm, I'm listening to him going, oh, this is so cool. I'm like, oh, this is Bill Kirchin. And, and so, so I immediately went and wrote your name down in the book, Bill. I was like, man, how did I, how did I miss Bill Kirchin for, for you know, because, you know, you're such a, you, you, I, I often refer to people who are, who are like zealots of rock and roll. You know, they were, they were there at, at every stage and <laughs> you were one of those people. So I want to go back. You're, you're from Ann Arbor, uh, yeah. Michigan, or you, you, you grew up there yeah and as far as i grew up i grew up there okay now i, I saw that uh you actually uh uh graduated from high school with uh with iggy pop correct right now the prior band called the iguanas i was on the uh, we were both on the high school talent show iggy with his, he was called iggy because of being in the iguanas right. not your iguanas but sure sure yeah and i had a band a jug band called the who knows pickers <laughs> and uh and we were you know actually speaking of yeah we were they i remember jim uh, osterberg iggy saying in the valley of the jolly green giant off of a giant drum riser huh and uh and we sang i wanted to sing um we, we were gonna i gotten a pickup for my guitar and i wanted to do subterranean homesick blues but the guy who ran the talent show went no 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 he'd rented hay bales and stuff for us so we did. We did a folk song. We did "Stealing" the old Jug Band song. Oh, okay. Yeah, I knew. I knew him. I didn't know him well, but I knew him, and I enough to where I went and saw him. We did a lot of gigs later in the Stooges' early career with Commander Cody. And matter of fact, I was at the very first Stooges gig, which is just a party down the street from where I live. That would have been '66, I guess. I got out of high school, and we both got out of high school in '65. So he was. He was always. You could just tell he was such a badass. He was always. It's compelling, you know. Yeah. Well, well so uh, how do how did you first get interested in in music or the guitar? What was the what drew you to it? Well, I mean, I I grew up as a music my music uh, education first I was a classical nerd and I played trombone and I you know, I went to Interlock and Music Camp and studied trombone and I didn't yeah. even listen to pop radio. It was we listened to Canadian radio and so I had a brief period of time here in pop radio when I was in junior high trying to, you know, trying to socialize in that direction. And uh, But then early on, I discovered I was around for the big folk scare, Renee and Manny, mm -hmm. and the big folk scare was exciting for me. And I learned banjo first. And in Ann Arbor, there was a great roots music scene I saw. Early on, before I left home, Bill Monroe came through town. Uh, I saw... Ronnie McGee and Sonny Terry. I saw John Hurt. I saw Bob Dylan played the high school, my high school in 64 when I was still there. Wow, and, really? Uh, man, Mike Bloomfield came through and played with his band. 
uh, right before he went to Newport in 65. And I saw him again there in 65 when he backed up Dylan and Dylan's famous and infamous uh, Go Electric thing. So it was a great musical environment to come up in. Really, really exciting. A lot, a lot of info there. Now, did they have that club, The Ark, going already at that time? Man, they did. They had The Ark starting, I would think, uh, oh, geez, 65 anyway, uh, maybe 66. That place ran forever, man. I know. It's still there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've played it many times. I mean, I've, I've played it going back to the 80s, but holy cow. Well, well. so, uh, but before you graduate from high school, you're mentioning uh, the Newport Folk Festival, and... So so you were at the 64 Yeah, 64 and 65, yeah. And and you saw Dylan uh in in both both times. I guess the first time he was just acoustic. Right. And as a matter of fact, I just saw I just watched a clip that I of him debuting Tambourine Man and it wasn't on any records yet till 65, so I would say 98% of the audience had never heard that song and I was sitting on the grass maybe 10 feet back from the stage and the stage was only a foot or two high and he's, as you can see it, it's on YouTube but he's sitting up there with Pete Seeger next to him kind of, Pete's kind of rubbing his chin going, yeah, there's another guy I don't recognize next to him he's got Joan Baez's little uh, single 045 uh, that she had, anyway it's it was stunning to me, man, I mean I I still hear that song and go, oh, man, no wonder I like this stuff. Wait a minute. Wait, let's go back to the high school talent show. Okay. You played. Iggy played. Who won the talent show? It wasn't like that, unfortunately, because uh, we would have we would have crushed the opposition. No, I don't know. I'm sure Iggy would have won. <laughs> <laughs> we were we were you know we were the folk scene was not as strong as the rock and roll scene back then. I'm just trying to be. I'm trying to be modest about this whole thing. Right, right, right. Well, so, <laughs> so did did you you hitchhike to the uh, to the to the Newport Folk Festival? Yes, I did. That's exactly right. Yeah, but my, you know, I mean, I, I like to present myself as a real hobo. But now that I recall, we realized it was really hard to get down US twenty three from Ann Arbor, the hundred, the fifty miles to the Ohio Turnpike, and I would talk my dad into driving me down to the Ohio Turnpike and dropping me off at the first rest area so I could try to get rides that way. And uh, you know what a what a good dad to do that. Yeah, yeah, trusting. Yeah, I guess he had a yeah. faith faith in your ability to uh, handle yourself out there. Well, I guess, or else <laughs> he was na- or else he was naive. I don't he, know. He, he didn't really care one way or the other. <laughs> no, he did care. But <laughs> right, right, right. Well, so so going back the next year and and seeing uh, Dylan go electric. Now, so so they is he playing uh, like a Rolling Stone there in '65? What did he do? He did no, that wasn't out yet. He played okay. uh, Maggie's Farm. Uh, Oh, dang, I can't remember what all he played. Shoot, you'd think I could. So what was the reaction there? What, what well, was- no, he, I got to say, for a long time, I, I didn't get much corroboration for this, but I don't remember anybody booing. And uh, finally, maybe, of course, this was, what, 55 years ago, but 56 years ago, but late, about 20 years after the fact, I read a book by Al Cooper, who, of course, was the piano, the keyboard player. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned that he didn't think there was that much booing. There was strife backstage uh, uh, between, I think, Pete Seeger was upset about it. And there was <laughs> problems because they were super loud. Bloomfield was up there with a the Fender Twin, probably dimed. You know? uh-huh. Well, I, I saw a documentary on that. There you Dylan go. Goes, you, saw, you were uh, there. Dylan then. goes electric, and 
the way the documentary made it seem like now I saw this documentary maybe like 10 years ago on PBS or yeah. you know, Amer- American masters or whatever that thing is. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and it, the way this person, the documentarian made it seem like it was 50, 50. They did talk about like the backstage stuff. Like, Oh, you can't do this. You can't, you know, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And, but there was also like, we're, go- we're doing this. It's going to be great. Don't worry about it. And then there was, there wasn't much booing, but I think there was just more confusion in the audience, especially with, I guess, you know, the old school back then, the old school folk people um, that were just confused. It's like, why is he doing this? Because the year before he came out and is just with his guitar and stuff and, and, and well, rock the world. You know? I, I know what you're saying. I, and you may be right about the confusion. There's one fact, though. He had already released uh, Subterranean Homesick Blues. And, right. And so that's an electric rock and roll record. So it wasn't like completely new. But you're right. He was the folk darling of the festival. And and at that point, there was also strife between his manager and uh, one of the – I can't think of the guy's name. One of those uh, blues scholars. I can't think of who the hell it was, but the mm-hmm. guy from Houston. But at any rate, they were rolling around in the grass because the guy had dissed the Butterfield band uh-huh. as being, uh, that also happened in 65. So you're right. There was, there was pushback against electric instruments, but I sure don't remember people booing. And, uh, it's it because you are an acid. I was no, not yet. I wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even, <laughs> I don't even think I spent 64. I didn't even smoke pot. I didn't even drink. I was like, we slept on the, I slept on the beach. I had a little banjo with me, you know, it was uh, pretty innocent back there. And it was small crowds. It wasn't one giant crowds. No, 65. I, I may have sipped a beer by then, but I was, (laughs) I was, I was a slow starter. Okay. All right. Well, because you had your whole life ahead of you. So you wasn't any big, any big rush there. Yeah. Well, so so you you uh, you leave Ann Arbor and do you you make your way to San Francisco? Now, the, some of the guys from Commander Cody, you are always already playing with those guys in Ann Arbor, right? Yeah, the band started in Ann Arbor, and it was pretty much just a kind of a uh, you know like a frat rock band. But there was two people, several people around that band, including the commander himself and his more his brother was the more like wild-eyed hippie guy who was a delightful guy, did all the art, album artwork at the art school there in Ann Arbor. And there was a huge history of performance art and new music and general wacky behavior around Ann Arbor those days. And so mm-hmm. the band had a floating membership, but there was two girls who would, who had, would wear green bra and panties and stand there and do the twist and somebody else <laughs> would do jumping jacks with an electric with a flag so anyway it was that kind of a deal performance art right and they would show we played a gig once where they showed movies of dental extractions on the wall behind <laughs> us which, <laughs> so that's something i never carried on in the rest of my career I, i've never been able to live up now to is that. the commander really a commander well, in the band he was. He was sort of the uh, lantern-jawed, follow-me-men guy in the band. He doesn't have any formal rating as a commander other than in our eyes and in our hearts. And his first name was Cody. No, George Frayne was his name. Command- <laughs> George Frayne. Okay. That still is, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and, yeah, he, he's, he's, the, he's, he's my commander, and 
perhaps yours too, and you don't realize it. So sure, yeah. sure. <laughs> well, so so you started in in uh, in Ann Arbor, but uh, then you guys, as a band, make your way out to the West Coast. No, I went out there. He went off to teach art in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and you can imagine coming from Ann Arbor to Oshkosh, he wasn't too excited to be there. He'd drive home every weekend to party in Ann Arbor, uh-huh. and the uh, his. Frat buddy, who is also a very important founding member of that band, John Tishy. He went down and got his doctorate down at Georgia Tech. And uh, so I went out to California and I got to California and it struck me that we would be able to, I thought the band, everybody thought the band was over because we'd all, you know, people graduated, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody Mm -hmm. had any forward. This wasn't, back in these days, you'll find this hard to believe, but nobody made a business plan for this shit. It was basically, you got in the boat or you got in the van and then you got, you went downstream and wherever you landed. So I get to California and I was, I'd already met some people in, who played music out there and it struck me that we could uh, make a go of it. And I called the band and I said, one of the things I told them that was important, I think that I told them, not only do I think we can make it and, you know, play the ballrooms and whatnot. Uh, I think I, I should tell you right now that when you play outdoors in the park, the girls take their clothes off. So <laughs> yeah. That was pretty, uh, pretty back then in, in the, uh, in 68, that was... A, That's when the acid started for you, right? All the acid came in not too long <laughs> after that. <yeah. laughs> so this is the late 60s at this point? When yeah, you late 60s, uh-huh, uh-huh. I turned 21 in 69 out there, and the band was out there by then already. So they came out in late 68, early 69. That uh, sounds like a Jackson Brown lyric. 69 it was uh, 21 yeah <laughs> exactly that's, what that's right sounds. maybe i am jackson brown man. maybe <laughs> that acid kicked in late or something man i might be you might be you might got the wrong guy here okay well, we got the right guy um <laughs> 21 that was 69 yeah there you go exactly <laughs> Or maybe a few years off. Yeah, right now. Yeah, Actually, close. it is twenty-one. It is yeah, twenty-one. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. seventy. I'm seventy-two. What the hell? There this you math. go. This twenty-one. Is, I was seventy-two. I was seventy-two. <laughs> it's almost working out. Yeah, yeah. Jackson, yeah. Jackson Gray. That'll be my stage name. There you go. We're working this thing. We're we're making money right now. Right, we were leaving right. money on the table before this. We got we're on to something. Sure. Well, listen, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let's just go back there real quick. That's okay. where uh, Michigan University is. Yes, University of Michigan. They call it. Okay, the Wolverines or whatever. Very right good. There. Yeah. You're yes. Good. Okay. Now that I always hear is just they're they're fucking crazy going nuts for that football program there. They are. You're did right. You, and did they ever was, rub off on you? No, or, uh, or I was. I was originally just disinterested as not being a jock guy. Then I was, uh, you know, counterculture to the point where it was like, well, man, you know, it would, <laughs> you guys are yeah. harshing our mellow with your, it, that the stadium held 101,000 people back in oh, the yeah. late sixties. I mean, come on. That's ridiculous. That's like Texas. They weren't yeah. as rabid about football as they are in Texas because they didn't seem to filter in the rest of the culture. It was just this behemoth in the corner. And I actually played there once playing trombone. There was a masked band of high school students. So I was out there with my trombone and we were playing 76 trombones from the Meredith Wilson's The Music Man. And Meredith Wilson himself was conducting. And he had a stepladder, wow. you know, about 20 feet high to conduct from. And he had one of those big batons, like if you saw the the movie or the play, the music band, it's about six feet tall and he pushes this up and down. So, so you said you were a masked musician. Was that because of COVID? 
No, it was a masked band, oh, M-A-S-S-E-D, oh, which okay. means there was, they claimed there was 7,600 trombone players, but that's oh. an exaggeration. There couldn't have oh, been okay. Yeah, they're, they're, I know they're, 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 they're very crazy about their football there. Yeah. And, and the problem mm-hmm. is that they're, they can't win. Is that right? I, they, I know. I'm sure they did at one point, but I don't know. They did at one point. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not. You're up on that stuff, and you know, I'll have to take your word on that. If you tell me they suck, I'll have to just take your word for it. So, so the band gets out there to San Francisco, and you start uh, moving among all these groups. Grateful Dead. What other bands are out there that that are y'all's contemporaries that you're doing gigs with? And- well, um, we played with the Airplane, and then. Um, okay. The Starship and, and uh, Hot Tuna a lot. Right. There was a band that we ended up sharing a manager with the new writers of the Purple Sage who'd started off kind of mm-hmm. as a Grateful Dead spinoff. Jerry Garcia played Steel with them and shit like that. I think. And uh, Spencer Dryden was a drummer who had been in the airplane originally. And and I knew people more. I didn't hang a lot with those people. We'd see them at gigs, but I kind of knew. There was a band called the Cleanliness and Godliness Skiffle Band that I knew. And maybe, Manny, maybe you're aware of this because it's or some one of you guys, but there was a record out called The Masked Marauders. And, and it was supposedly uh, Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger and um, XXX up in uh, – uh, a cabin up in northern Minnesota, and they cut this record. And the record came out, and there was an article in Rolling Stone. Of course, it was all bullshit. It was all friends of mine, you know, making yeah. this shit up. But it was pretty cool. I Can't Get No Nookie was one of the songs, and uh, they did a, They claimed that was written about uh, the woman up there, Nanook of the North. Uh, I was just patently ridiculous stuff but it actually they they backed it just just got re-released i think recently now jerry garcia i mean you you knew him right yeah and of all those guys to me he was the most kind of normal and reasonable and nice guy i don't really have <laughs> he was honestly there were uh, there tended to be a fair amount of tood around those guys and you know understand but he, he comes from that bluegrass that's background. right Exactly, uh, you know, yeah. Because um, there was that great documentary that Scorsese made about the um, the dead, and they really focused on that background that he had for a very long time. I never uh, saw that. What was that called? I should go watch that. Uh, it was called, uh, I don't know. It was a title of one of their songs. Cool. Like, uh, yeah, but it's like a four-part, five-part series or whatever. They had a lot of great footage, but... I found that because uh, I had a lot of, uh, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, I had a very good friend of mine who was like, you know, uh, a lawyer during the week, but he was a deadhead during the weekend. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was, and I would go to these dead shows in the 80s with him. And it was so, to me, I mean, because I was a punk rock kid and stuff. And I like classic rock and stuff like that. And to see these bands playing. And, Never getting it, never getting it until after like Jerry died, <laughs> and then and then I started listening to more and more of their stuff, and going, well, they're a very fucking. This is a great band, man, fucking great, and I could see that bluegrass influence in a lot of their tunes, uh, you know. But he just liked the party. You know, right? It got away from him, didn't it? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I'm sort of with you. But back then, one thing that I've realized after after the whole original band sort of dissolved in the mid seventies before that we had this young, you know, fairly aggressive, Hey man, we're in this band and you're not kind of. And so I was dismissive of other, 
other bands that I later realized how good they were. And for instance, even I never paid any attention to Credence because they did, you know, I put a spell on you and we already knew or, or, or the other one. We, by some Screaming Jay Hawkins song, we already mm-hmm. knew about Screaming Jay Hawkins and they did Susie Q and we already knew about, you know, Roger, uh, Roger Hawkins or no, not Roger Hawkins. Anyway, now I say we knew about, it and I can't remember jack shit, but at any rate, <laughs> so, and I thought, I thought, wow, man, these guys don't swing. Well, no, they didn't swing. They weren't trying to swing. They were a great right. pop rock band. So I've, and I've become that way about the dead more too. I'm less, less judgmental and go, yeah, okay. And I always thought that the fact I kind of appreciated that they had a big cult following and, and deadheads followed them everywhere and, and twirled and were ecstatic and stuff better than the, better than the other stuff you know yeah the best thing about the dead was for me when i got to see them live because my friend dragged me to all these shows up and down california <laughs> is that when they started the song you could go to the bathroom <laughs> come back and they'd still be playing the same song that's right <laughs> <laughs> the greatest oh, story yeah. i ever had about the dead was is they played irvine amphitheater like seven nights in a row and i went with my friend the lawyer and um, I didn't have a ticket, but we, we, had, we had dropped. You know, Ooh. we had dropped. And so I didn't care. So I wanted the parking lot. And then all of a sudden, and this only happens when you drop, uh, I ended up backstage. Okay. I just <laughs> somehow you, tele- you just teleported there. Yeah. I know how that works. I just, yeah, it was common, I remember, common I, re- I remember they were playing. They are playing in front of all these thousands of people. And I'm like on the wing of the stage, you know on the side of the stage, just watching them jam and not, I'm not dancing like everyone else is dancing. And I'm just wandering this. And, and then I wandered away and it was crazy. <laughs> we did a bunch of gigs with them and I'm going to tell this story, but I'm going to start with a disclaimer that due to my <laughs> interest in taking drugs and drinking, I had to stop everything back in, in uh, 84 and I've been sober since then. I only say, I don't say that because anybody else should do that. I'm just trying to explain that I'm not especially recommending this, but um, back in those days, the dead roadies had bottles of of little LSD uh, bottles, murine bottles full of LSD and they would give out little drops and you would decide how many drops you wanted. (laughs) You'd hold out your hand and they'd give you that number of drops and you'd lick them and you'd be fine. Well, the same thing happened with the new riders, which was sort of the farm team for the dead roadies. Some of the, you know, Mm -hmm. for instance, one guy I remember with crazy Peter kind of got too wild and got demoted to being a writer. And at any rate, (laughs) at one point, I never had been that big a fan of the band. I was, you know, like the guys we'd done a fair number of shows with them. But, and I took, and I asked this guy for a, you know, X number of drops. And it was probably Owsley himself, as I recall. If not, he was the guy around wow. it. He's the guy who, inv- who also invented that giant PA that we had to sing. Before. We actually played the Hollywood Bowl sang to that PA. But uh-huh. I took this number of drops of acid and, all of a sudden, I'm out there in front of Phil Lesh's bass amp, 
And he was like the unduck done, you know, for every uh-huh. one note duck done played, he played like six or so. But he's right. great and everything, great bass player. And all of a sudden, the different notes, he had a big ass rig with probably every string had its own amplifier. And yeah. every note would affect me. And it's as if I had, if, if you ever been in an airplane, you know, they got roll, pitch, and yaw, you know, there's uh-huh. one exit going. So I had these three axes and different notes would make me move. So, oh, Manny, man. that's the closest I got to doing being a dead dancer was when the acid was uh, okay, just I had roll pitch and yaw. And, uh, <laughs> so there, yeah. Right, right, right. Well, so uh, so so then Commander Cody hits with uh, Hot Rod Lincoln. So that, right. that must have, I mean, that's a, a huge hit. Still a record we, we can hear on the radio nowadays. Yeah, that's, and that was our first album. And the very first song they released from it was, I don't know why any record company or us would think this was a good idea, but it was called Lost in the Ozone again. It was this real creaky hillbilly song with, uh, he goes, I'm lost in the ozone again. I'm lost in the ozone. Again. One drink of wine, two drinks of gin, and I'm lost in the ozone again. And that was our first single. And as you can imagine, it sank without a trace. Uh-huh. But the <laughs> second single was Hot Rod Lincoln, and lo and behold, it was a hit record. And when you're that young, you think that every second record you put out is going to be a hit. But it wasn't the case. Right. <laughs> it was our right. first and last actual hit. Now, and then based on that, you guys do a, do a, a bunch of touring around. And another place you wind up is uh, on the free John Sinclair benefit concert with right. the Plastic Ono Band and uh, Stevie Wonder and crazy, man. So, it was so- actually not the Plastic Ono Band. It was John Lennon and, uh, and the Lower East Side, David Peel and the Lower East Side. Okay. And, but, but that was a good call, though. It could, I don't remember Yoko being there back then in 71. I'm not sure she was there. Yeah, okay. That was a long time ago, 71 or two. And he, that was Ann Arbor. He was a pretty, he was, a, did you know John in New Orleans, you guys? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John, you know, he was actually supposed to be on the podcast uh, right before COVID hit. So, uh, oh. you know, yeah. So I did a gig with him down here um, uh, sometime last year, did one of those blues scholar gigs you know you play some blues and he he, uh, recites poetry i guess you've done some of those huh i have done one yeah i I like john a lot he's a good guy he also gave me my very first job with a band my i had a psychedelic band called psychedelic folk rock band called the seventh seal right before i left for california in ann arbor he got us a gig at a club outside of detroit where he lived at the time so manny did he endorse your campaign campaign for mayor John, John, who? Well, who was it? John? John Sinclair, you know. Uh, oh, John Sinclair. Yeah. Uh, no, I. He hasn't. He hasn't yet. He hasn't. He hasn't yet. We were trying to bring him into the fold there, Bill. But uh, again, we he, yeah. he didn't didn't quite make it in so far. So hopefully, uh, you know, John's doing well, and he'll get back down here. We'll get him on the podcast and get him get him on the campaign trail behind uh, Manny Chevrolet for mayor. Well, tell, tell him I said hi if you talk to him. I will. He's, a, I he's will. a good egg. So let me ask you, going back to Iggy Pop for a second. Sure. Um, so you guys were, went to high school. You had bands and all that. Did You knew that he was going to be a star, he, or he knew he was going to be a star. I'll tell you, that's a good question because the first time I saw this, he was, he was in the Prime Movers, his blues band, which was very influential, and they turned me into a lot of great music. The keyboard player sold me my first. He sold me that record, Home of the Blues, Volume One, with Ernie K. Doe and uh, mm. uh, and everybody. You know, it was all those 
minute records on the minute mm-hmm. label. And uh, I guess Cosmo, what's the guy's name? Cosmo Matisse? Cosmo Batassa. Yeah, Matassa, yeah. I never pronounced the last name right, but he produced all those records. He, but they were influential. Iggy played, Jim played drums in that band, and he was great. And he was a great blues shuffle drummer. They did a lot of blues and pretty oh, much wow. the only guy in town who could do that. Really? And he ended up going to Chicago and hanging out with, you know, for instance, Bob Kester, who just passed away. And and he grabbed the idea that these blues guys, the intensity they were doing and the and the real life shit they were talking about, he got the idea to to do that himself and bring it back, but do it in terms of what it's like being a disenfranchised you know, poor white guy and, um, you know, a kid, kid rock and roll. So the first show I saw was at a party and he was sitting on the floor and I got there late and it was just at a house party and it was their first gig ever. And he was sitting there running a, a mic in and out of a vacuum cleaner. Going, <laughs> he was, and he'd spray painted himself silver and the uh, Ron and Scott Ashton were just sitting there like, <laughs> you know, yeah. And, uh, Man, I thought, oh, no, poor Jim. He's taken too many drugs. You know, it's uh. gone all horribly wrong. But then you saw him within a short time, I don't know what, a month or two, they were doing gigs and they would be on the same bill with us. And he was awesome. He was just unbelievable. You had to go, this is – there was – it was undeniable. You couldn't walk away and go, I don't know about this shit. You know, and I don't know what he's up to. It was, you go, I don't know what he's up to, but he is up to something. So yeah. because there's a, there's a famous, apparently there was a, there's a famous, and I've seen clips of it. There's a famous show like at the Detroit municipal auditorium that was televised on local TV. I don't know if you know about that. No, I don't. Uh-uh. I've seen it. I've wow. seen it. And it's, it's, it's really amazing because there's actually like two hosts who are like kind of like sports announcers who are like going, there he goes. And now he's going over the audience. Yeah. He's jumping around going crazy. And he's playing in front of a, so a huge crowd in Detroit. Yeah. That actually was televised on local TV. That's like your wild. Local, like your local PBS channel or whatever. I don't know. But I'm sure you can find some of it on YouTube. And I've seen a lot of it over the years through documentaries and stuff, but it's hilarious to hear these, these Announcers. like sports. Yeah. Go play ahead. by play. Yeah. yeah. They're doing like a play by play. Exactly. <laughs> no, he's, it's like, he's on his knees. He's <laughs> yeah. He's bending backwards. <laughs> he smeared the peanut butter all over himself. <laughs> he's eating glass. He's eating glass. Yeah. <laughs> I saw him and we did a gig with him at the old Fillmore in San Francisco after, and after I'd moved out there and he gets out there and there was very few people there. It was us and I think Alice Cooper and and the Stooges and none of us were, had filled that auditorium at that point for some reason. Yeah. And uh, and anyway, there was this couple sitting there on the floor, you know, and, and he gets down in the audience. He crawls over on his belly and he goes up to this couple and he starts chewing on the guy's shoe. And it, <laughs> what, what was excellent about that is the guy really could not deal with that. So he was pretending it wasn't happening. Uh-huh. So he's turning to his girlfriend and kind of chatting. And it's like, oh, excuse me, sir, but Iggy Pop is chewing on your shoe at this very moment. <laughs> you know, it needed the announcer. And now he's chewing on the guy's shoe. <laughs> but and, uh, yeah, I can just imagine the guy going, uh, so, honey, you want to go to a doggy diner after the show? You know? Nice, nice. And he just released something about a year ago, didn't he? Well, man, I saw him cut something with a with a 
some jazz, a famous jazz sax player or vocal. I don't even remember who it was now, man. What's happening to my memory? He's always putting something out. Well, Manny, um, I'm looking at my cocktail and thinking uh, this, this might be a good time to take a break, don't you think? Sure, let's take a break. Uh, I might need another cup of uh, Yorkshire tea myself. That's what I'm sure. Gonna, I'm going to get all high up on Yorkshire tea. If sure. You so, Bill, this is the time where the, the whole troubled nation knows that we take a break to fill our glass, and we'll be back in a second. My pepper said, son, you're going to drive me to drinking if you won't quit driving that old hot rod lick. I heard the story of the hot rod race when the Ford and the Lakers were setting the pace. Stories to you I'm here to say, because I was driving that Model A. Had a model they bought it made it look like a pup Licking motor that was really souped up Had eight cylinders, used them all With overdrive, it just won't stop Four living gears and a dual exhaust Had a four-barrel car, you can really get lost Safety tips, I ain't scared The brakes are good and the tires fair Pulled out of San Pedro late one night The moon and the stars were shining bright I was climbing up the grapevine hill Passing cars like they were standing still <laughs> By and a remark was made, that's a car for me. But then the taillight was all you could see. Now Johnny ripped me for being behind, so I said, hey, I'll make my licking on the line. Took my foot off the gas and man alive, shoved it down into overdrive. I wound it up to 110, and I twisted the speedometer off the end. My foot was glued like lead to the floor, that's all there is, there ain't Sense. He said the telephone poles look like a picket fence Slow down, I see spots The lines in the road look just like dots So I took a corner side Swipe the truck, cross my fingers just for luck The fenders were clicking the guardrail post The guy behind me was white as a ghost And we're back Back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet I am Renee Coman, back with our guest Mr. Bill Kirchin Now Bill, uh, I know you're You're not a regular listener to the show At, at least not yet not but, yet, uh, but yeah, I might but, be now. That's right, right. We're winning you over bit by yeah, bit here. Exactly. But uh but uh we have a terrific uh product that we've been associated with and uh the nation knows about it. But uh Manny, why don't you tell Bill about this terrific product? I'm all ears. Bill, you're all ears? Uh-huh. Uh I'm gonna talk to you about the Velo Bar. Would you spell that for me first? V as in vagina. E-L-O as in electric light orchestra bar, like chewing the bar. Gotcha. Uh, the Velo bar. All right. The Velo bar is a, a beautiful protein bar that has 25 milligrams of CBD per bar. Mm. Uh, and that's what everybody's into now, this CBD stuff. And it's really great to take the edge off of whatever you're dealing with. It's a healthy protein bar. It'll fill you up and it'll calm you down. And who doesn't need relief right now? Everyone's freaking out. Oh, yeah. Now, Bill, this is a plant-based protein bar from healthy superfood ingredients like pumpkin seeds, hemp hearts, and chia seeds. And it's, it's, it's like a breakfast bar. I like to eat it after doing yard work because I'm an old man. And, and <laughs> after I do yard work, I feel really sore and stuff. And it really helps me with that. And it comes in two great flavors, Bill, a dark chocolate and a peanut butter. And right now, right now, or anytime you want to, 
If you go to VeloBarCBD.com and make an order, you'll get 15% off and free shipping. And you get that by using the Troubled Men discount code. It's TroubledMen15. And I'm telling you, man, this stuff is, 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 is rocking the nation. Troubled men or troubled man? Men. At plural, okay. Yeah, man. I have a question about this product, if you don't mind my acting. What's that? Asking me as someone who uh, isn't interested in doing any psychoactive material at this point in my life, can I be can I be assured that uh, it's not the psychotropic side of CBD? No, it's it's not. You can be it's assured. Not. Yes, it's not the okay. it's not the psychotropic Good. side. But if you were looking for that, uh, uh, the Velobar company does have this uh, a, a newer product we've been talking about, the uh-huh. uh, Great Escape Cookies. And I get that you. is uh, Delta Eight THC based cookies. So mm-hmm. uh, those will get you high. And they also have the Great Escape Brownies. And uh, those have been flying off the shelves. The nation loves them. And that's uh, twenty one. And older because it, it is a right, uh, right. it is a psychoactive product, it, but they are uh, uh, legal in forty two states. They can ship to. Wow, well, I'd be sticking with the Velo Bar, but I I I don't. Well, we can send you we can send you a free sample of the Velo Bar if you wish. Yes, yes, we can do that. For I would you. love that. Thank you. We can do that. Renee will get your digits and we'll send them right out to you because the CEO of the company is a good friend of mine That's and Renee's, and he wants to get this product out there and, and people talking about it. Is he in, also? Is he in New Orleans? No, he's in prison. Yeah, no. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so the discount code for the cookie is uh, Troubled Cookie One Five, and the discount code for the brownies is Troubled Brownie One Five. And uh, you know you can find the links there on the Velo Bar page or the uh, show notes of the Troubled Men podcast, and uh, you know put that promo code in, and and it's always free shipping with the Velo Bar company. Wow. Yeah, people are loving it. Check it out, uh, and. Uh, the more uh, people buy uh, uh, the, and, the, and spread the word around, it's a good thing. Yes, yes. And as always, if you want to uh, support the Trouble Men podcast directly, we have the cocktail fund there in the show notes. And we have a, a, a Patreon page as of the last few weeks. And we had uh, another uh, patron signed up to the Patreon page. So we're, we're gaining patrons every week, Manny. Uh, the, the nation is responding um, you know, we have, have uh, the, the troubled listener level, the uh, drinking buddy level, and the troubled friend. And we have some of each of those. So, so, wow. so you know, if you're enjoying these 150-plus uh, uh, shows that we have up, uh, you know, get involved and, and support the podcast and, and uh, help us to continue getting these kind of uh, fantastic guests like uh, the terrific Mr. Bill Kirchin. So Wow. So, Bill, um, we, yes. we, you were in where we last left you when you were in uh, Commander Cody, but uh, that band kind of runs its course. Yes, um, it did. Somewhere in the mid sixties, I mean mid seventies. Mid seventies, yeah. Mm-hmm. You you uh, you, you uh, hook up with Nick Lowe, the great Nick Lowe. How does the how does that Nick wind Lowe. up happening? Well, um, I had a band called the Moonlighters, and. There was this guy that I always knew. Actually, I saw him in California when I first moved out there, uh, but named Austin DeLone. And Austin DeLone had a band called Eggs Over Easy, which is rightfully credited as being the godfathers, the progenitors of 
pub rock, which preceded punk rock. Okay. And uh, out there in uh, England. And Brinsley Schwartz, all this kind of Yeah, and Nick was in Brinsley Schwartz, and they were they came after Eggs Over Easy and looked up to Eggs and stuff. So at one point, my band, my Moonlighters, has become a four-piece, like new wavy kind of band or something. And I'd seen I'd met Nick Lowe when he was still in the Brinsleys in England, and then I saw Rockpile and during their brief uh career with, with Dave Evans, you know, and mm-hmm. and so anyway, Audie Delone. We're, we've written a bunch of songs with the Moonlighters, and he sends a demo tape to uh, Nick Lowe, and Nick Lowe writes back. This would have been the uh, late 70s. Nick Lowe writes back, Dear hero of mine, to Audie, to Austin Delone, as, or wow. Audie as we call him. Mm-hmm. And he invites us to England to produce a record by the Moonlighters, which we do. We raise the money, go to England. He produces a record. And that was the beginning of my relationship with him. And I ended up uh, being in his band for a while when he was transitioning from being on major labels to his uh, his career with Upstart Records. And, you know, it, it's really been – is that the, still the name of his company? What – what the hell anyway but that's been that was he really reinvented himself from the days of uh uh you know having a hit record with cruel to be kind and he also wrote what's so funny about peace love and understanding so i ended up touring the world with nick and recording on about three of his records one of them i was like third chair was in la was his last major label record and ry cooter was on it and dave edmonds and i was just sitting in the corner saying don't throw me out i'll be good i'll behave you know <laughs> are you in the cruel to be kind music video no i'm not that's cool that uh, is uh that's um um god dang it i can think of no names today yeah the bass right. player from clover who who ended up in uh Oh, okay. Oh shit! I'm just, I'm just. Because that had to be one of like the first music videos I ever saw. Like it it came out in the late '70s, and it was just like, it was like, what is this? They're making movies to songs now. (laughs) It's it's crazy, going nuts. They're actually, that's actually, I think, shot around the time of Nick's wedding. I think. Well, yeah, because there's a wedding. There's a whole wedding. There's a bunch of wedding scenes. Yeah, that's when he married Carlene. And that's anyway. I worked with Nick a bunch, and he's still a hero, a hero of mine. And later, he uh, he he uh, on my first a- album under my own name that I made in England. I'd made a bunch before in the states, but I went to England for about ten years. Recorded there for about ten years, and he he didn't produce the first album I made. There was called Hammer the Honky Donk Gods, and it was the same band that we had toured the world as Nick Lowe's band. Okay. So that was great. Anyway. And you wind up uh, meeting Elvis Costello and doing some playing with him through, right. through Niccolo. Right. We met Elvis there. And uh, and before I flew back to the States, the time I was in England recording with Nick in the 70s, he had just released that record. Uh, was it called Almost Blue? But the one that Billy Sherrill produced in Nashville with the attractions. And he didn't mm-hmm. have... John McPhee was the Ameri- the guitar player from Clover who played on it. So he got me to do a BBC radio show. And that was the first time I played guitar with Elvis. And then later uh, we did a Harley Strictly Bluegrass Festival in San Francisco. He borrowed my album title, Hammer of the Honky Donk Gods, uh, as the name of the band. He called it Elvis Costello and the Hammer of the Honky Donk Gods. 
So I've done a few things with him. I don't, you know, I don't regularly play with him, but I uh, consider him a friend and um, I'm, I brag about knowing him, don't I? Nice. No, well, I had to drag it out of you. You, you don't brag about it. I mean, you, uh, but, and a couple of other names that, that you know, it's uh, some wild people you've played with, uh, Link Ray and Gene Vincent. So, right. I can't believe I'm that old that I would have played with both those guys, but it's true. <laughs> I don't know what happened. The Link Ray, <laughs> is that from the, your years in D.C.? Cause it, no, yeah. it wasn't actually. Uh, actually, it, it happened much later. It happened in about 74 or 73. He was out in San Francisco to make a record uh, with Thomas Jefferson K. producing it. Uh, and it was a real – and it, it, Link was great. He was a real nice guy. And, and it was, they were trying to make like a rock and roll record. I think they had some guys. Jerry Garcia might have been on it, and they brought – guys from Cody in there. And that was, that was fun. It was called, of course, I can't remember the name, but I can't remember. Yeah, it right but, uh, doesn't matter. It was three words in the title, man. That's all I know. Three okay, words. Close <laughs> enough. Close three enough. words, no waiting. <laughs> right. Right. Maybe. Uh, and so then earlier, the Gene Vincent story was pretty unusual. This was, ah, boy, it was towards the end of his life, unfortunately. And, uh, I just talked to a guy who was in the, anyway, we played, he came to town. They, somebody hooked us up with him. He just made a record in England. that was very ill-conceived. He was a badass rockabilly guy and he, they'd had him make a hippie record and it had songs like, you know, red, blue, strawberry, green, no, 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 no. <laughs> and then like full, full greaser stuff. Like I remember the other song that were embarrassed us was, Busted for possession of love and a <laughs> pocket and a switchblade knife. And it's like, no, oh, no, 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 no. So anyway, but Gene was great. He sang like a bird. And we rehearsed with him in this dirt floor basement downstairs uh, where some of us lived at the time in Oakland. And our first gig was at the Oakland Coliseum with, no, it wasn't the first gig. The first gig we did was at a bar, and we all got dosed on PCP, but that's a whole other story I don't want to get into. Yeah, yeah. Gene did not, or he would have been dead. He yeah. left, but he was not in good shape. He had that, you know, skinny guy with a big, you know, who swallowed a watermelon look from uh -huh. uh, from problems. Right. And I believe, I would think that he was an alcoholic. I'm guessing. I don't really know that. but yeah. And so we get to uh, – we play Oakland Coliseum, and we he was we were messing around in the basement. And first thing he, we said, do, do, "Why don't you do a woman love?" You know, a woman love, hey, hey, hey. and it's got this uh -huh. line, and it goes, and he go, and it, it sounds like he goes, a hugging and a fucking all the time, uh -huh. and you know, and of course, by that this time it's the seventies. That wasn't quite the problem it had been, but he said, "No, I can't do that because I'll get arrested," and we're thinking, of course, uh -huh. I'm sorry, you know. Gene, I don't think you can get arrested now. That's yeah. kind of, you know. <laughs> That's the problem. And he was lovely, and he was it sang great, but he was just disconnected and probably bad management. And so right. we get up there, and it's opening for Merle Haggard. Uh, and oh, we played okay. a set, and then Merle Haggard. Then it's me, us backing up Gene Vincent. And he gets up there, and he screws up just the way he said he would. He said, no, I can't do crazy arms because I always mix up the first words. And so he gets up there, mixes them up. There's a diamond vision screen. He, uh, he forget, you know, it just went horribly wrong. And I just had a friend over here from Larry Sloven from uh, High Tone Records, and he was at that gig, and he said that 
I'd forgotten this, but he claims that Gene got booed off the stage, oh, which I don't even know. remember. Either that's uh, either only if certain people did that, and that's what he remembers, or I right. put it out of my mind. He said, "You guys, Cody, had to finish the set yourself with your stuff because he hadn't, he hadn't stayed on long enough." Yeah. So at any rate, that was unfortunate because uh, he was he was a great artist. He was one of the original kind of bad boy rockabilly guys on Capitol. Right. Made great records. So anyway. Yep. Not my not that's not fun to to be part of that. But there right, you go. right. Let me, let me ask you something, Bill. Yeah. Going back to, going back to Elvis Costello, I, I got to meet him uh, working on a film in the south of Spain where cool. they got all these English rockers with American actors, and huh. the film was what it was. But I I didn't really talk to him much. I said hello to him maybe once or twice, and but I noticed. I mean, I don't know how how he was then when you knew him, but he just Every time I saw him, if it was in the elevator, the lobby of the hotel, or on the set, he had a guitar in his hand. Huh. The guy is constantly writing songs. I mean, it just, it just he's like a factory. Well, he I sure has cranked them out, man, and good stuff, too. I mean, he's been so productive. Uh, right. I, I don't remember that fact about him always having a guitar, but I agree with you. He's, I would think just unusually productive and he's always kind of reinvented himself and slightly yes. working with other people. And yeah, I got a lot of time, a lot of respect for him, that guy. Well, he worked with Jerry Garcia too. They did some stuff together. Maybe so. He worked, I know he worked with Robert Hunter, the writer from, for that stuff, you know, and um, he may well have worked with Garcia, although I'm not sure about that. I don't think that, I don't think the career years line up correctly. I think it would have been Robert Hunter. Well, maybe you're right. I'm not going to argue with you. You might be right, but I thought Jerry Garcia was gone by the time his career began, but I could be wrong about that. I know he liked when we did play Golden Gate Park, he did some dead songs on that show. So, oh, right. Well, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Wow. Well, there was that period where Elvis had like really long, crazy hair and a beard and stuff like that. Wow. And I think that was it. I think he hooked up with Garcia maybe a couple years before uh, Garcia died. Wild. I yeah. didn't know yeah. that. that could well but happen. I always find it funny. Like he, there's so many great talents. Like like Paul McCartney, who just seems to produce songs right. after songs. And, and is he? He's probably one of those guys who just has a guitar in his hand constantly. You know. I, I, mean, I mean, you've been around. You've been around yeah. a lot of musicians and great ones and stuff. Are the great ones? Are, are they that way? Or do they? I mean, is it constantly on their mind? Are they? Is it? Is it kind of like? Uh, is it just kind of a weird uh, condition they have where they're constantly <laughs> writing and, and, and hearing hearing things, you know? Like, like you know, great chess players can see moves, you know, yeah, 14 yeah. moves before and stuff like that. Yeah, maybe they can see where the song's going before they write yeah. it. That's a great, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I think that guys like that are, they're overachievers. I don't mean that in a negative way, just but they're, they're, somehow have the energy and the self-confidence just to really produce. And both those guys are not lacking in it. It's yeah. just a talent that they're just born with. Yeah, maybe. Or yeah. they really work hard to develop it. I don't even know. Well, I mean, that's, yes, I don't, I don't understand, you know. I don't either. I don't. I don't write that much myself, and I have to write with a gun, you know, with a figurative gun to my head. I have to have a yeah. project coming. So I don't. These songs do not. I don't have a burning desire to tell you, Manny, my newest song. Like, listen to this. You know, I'm right. not right. that guy. So I have a lot of respect for those guys. 
So then, so then, uh, moving on to you, you, you relocate to DC and yeah. like the mid eighties and yeah, you mid-80s. start your band too much fun. And yeah, a, a trio. That's right. And that's, that's the band that I wind up uh, playing with you. You have yeah. that, that band too much fun for, for many years, but you yeah. have like a, a whole brotherhood of, of telly guys there in, in, uh, in DC, Danny Gatton, Roy Buchanan, all those guys are there, right? Yeah. So the, the, the telly t- tell us though the the fender telecaster it's it's like a whole world unto itself it sort of is it's got this for one thing it was one of the early electric guitars you know maybe the earliest maybe not but uh uh certainly the earliest mass-produced uh affordable electric guitar it dates back to it's almost as old as i am let me put it that way i was born in 48 and the telly was probably born around 49 50 okay so uh but it's it's also the simplest thing it's like a bicycle with you know the the most efficient way to get from point a to point b and like i mentioned i wrote a whole song about it called the hammer of the hunky dunk gods and it's you know it's a plank of wood a stick of wood that's about it it's got Six pegs, two knobs, two pickups, end of story. And uh, and also, interestingly enough, it, 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 Fender is constantly competing with their instruments from the first few years they were produced. Those are still the most valuable instruments. And the Telecaster, although it's changed a lot, it ends up being essentially identical, as, most, as identical as they can make it to the ones they made uh, 70 years ago. So. Right. There's like a whole approach of, of like that, that clean sound and the very crisp articulation and, and uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, a lot of the, 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 the emulation of uh, pedal steel and stuff that, that, that you guys, the real masters like you and, and, you know, some of these other people I mentioned or get into. Well, yeah, it's got, it's sort of, it doesn't do it for you. It doesn't have the sustain necessarily of a Les Paul or the kind of the boinginess of a Strat. And so it ends up being pretty, uh, you know, a wide range of people can use it. They're, you know, famous people like Keith Richards and uh, and then all the hill, the great hillbilly guitar players, James Burton and the guys right. with Merle Haggard and Buck Owens and and uh, Chrissy Hine playing rock guitar on it. And then uh, Prince. Prince, there you go. Bill Frizzell, Prince. Uh, so it's got a, it's covered a, oh, um, oh, I can't, anyway. Ted Ted Green, another great jazz guitar. Okay. Well, you know, I, I saw that uh, one of your tellies that you're using currently is made from some 200-year-old wood from Jim Jarmusch's loft. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, right. How, how did you wind up, how did that happen? Well, I I just stumbled. I was actually on touring with Nick Lowe as just a duo. I was opening for him at, and we played the uh, uh, club in DC down by. I'm sorry, club in New York City down by the uh, Holland Tunnel. And I was wandering around and ran into this guy's shop. It's called Carmen Street Guitars and Rick Kelly and. We both had been in Fretboard Journal, this magazine. He as a luthier and me as a guitar player. We both had articles, so we sort of knew each other, didn't know why it was because of that. And I ended up buying one of his guitars, and uh, and it turns out that Jim Jarmusch has one, and Jim Jarmusch actually bankrolled a, a movie about Rick Kelly and those guitars, and Jim Jarmusch also did the great Iggy Pop, great Stooges documentary called Gimme Danger. That's a Jarmusch movie. 
which I really didn't know about him until I got this guitar. And I have another one made from the uh, floorboards of the Chelsea Hotel. Ooh. I always tell people, I say, see this? See this neck, man? This is the neck that Bob Dylan slid down, uh, the banister. It's made from the banister that he slid down, man, right after he wrote, you know, when the, when my ship comes in. Okay. Yeah, you know, I met Jim Jarmusch back in 86 in New York, and I went to his apartment to, ha- to hang out. You walked maybe, on my telly. Maybe, maybe. This was in 86, <laughs> and he had one of the most minimal apartments ever. There was like a couch, a chair, a table, and that was it. I'm impressed. He had like all his clothes were on coat racks, and his girlfriend – his girlfriend at the time, um, she had this little like wall, like a made-up wall that hid the bed, hit their bed from everyone. Wow. But it was so, and it was so '80s, and I thought this is so cool. <laughs> this is so cool. I want to have an apartment like that. I don't want the clutter and all that stuff that comes with having an apartment. But you know, he's also uh, Jim Jarmusch. Uh, he's also uh, in this club that he and some other guys started called Sons of Lee Marvin. Have you ever heard of no, this? No, no, you're, you're way ahead of me on this stuff. Yeah, like the Sons it. of Lee Marvin. It's it's guys who sound and kind of look like Lee Marvin. And if you ever <laughs> if you ever look at Jim Jarmers or like watch an interview but close your eyes, he sounds like Lee Marvin. Wow, I never okay. knew that. And he, had, he actually showed me his little business card. I'm a member of the Sons of Lee Marvin. <laughs> now, I, I don't do a Lee Marvin impersonation, but we all know Lee Marvin's voice. Sure, yeah, sure, you know? sure. Yeah, we all know that. But he's, he, it, was really, yeah, it was really fun to meet him and to see that. I don't know if it was New York in the 80s. Everyone had to have that bleak kind of look and feel to their, you know, whatever. But this apartment was, I mean, it was a big place, too. But no furniture and, uh, uh, you know, just a, one door that led to a bathroom. Everything else was wide open. It was very crazy. That's cool. Loft life. Yeah. That's, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. It, was a big, it was a big loft. Yeah. New York in 86. You know, New York was pretty much at the peak of its, you know, being bankrupt and stuff like that. It was still, it was still like taxi driver. It still had the stench of urine in the streets and the rats were everywhere and all that kind of stuff. And then I... I came back five years later, and it was Disneyland, you know? Right, yeah. right, right. I you suspect know. that that was, that was before he rehabbed that loft, because I don't think oh, – uh, so you would have yeah. walked on my telecaster. I'm very – I think I'm, I did. I'm very I, glad to finally get to meet you. I've always wondered who did that. <laughs> I got your footprint right on it, man. There you go. You had those Doc – you were wearing Doc Martens at the time. I can see that. Uh, I was wearing my monkey boots at the time. <laughs> what are those? <laughs> Monkey boots are uh, uh, like a Doc Martin, but not as heavy. A little lighter. Mm. They stopped making. They they were made in England during the punk rock era, uh, and they stopped. And they were imported, you know, exported to Los Angeles to America. And I used to wear monkey boots all through the eighties. Nice. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they stopped making them. Can't find them. Damn it! Damn it! Yeah, they were cool. That's what happens, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But maybe you know yeah. everything. Everything old is new again, or everything yeah. that goes out of fashion comes back. And maybe you know, they'll we'll come that. back with the monkey boots. Maybe they'll come I back. Just saw my, I just went out to lunch with my daughter, who's late, I think she's 36 now, and she had on a pair of Doc Martin 
platform sandals. I was very impressed. I thought, wow, oh, geez. <laughs> platform what sandals? Are, what, what do they think of next? <laughs> Not oh, really wow. platform, but they're yeah. they're like an inch and a half of them. Right, right. Oh, damn it, that's cool. Really, really branching out there with the designs. I know. <laughs> Well, well, so Bill, at some point you, uh, you know, you're in DC for a long time, but then, uh, I was surprised that, that you've been in Austin for, for, uh, you know, 10 years now. Yeah. Well, that was that, that very daughter that I mentioned, uh, we'd moved here once before that to take care of my wife's dad because his other daughter, my sister-in-law, of course, that would be lives in, mm-hmm. moved, had moved to Austin from California. I met my wife in California when I moved out there. And we got married in 74. And so uh, we moved to Austin. Our daughter at one point joined us, and I moved back to D.C. after my father-in-law passed away. We, we didn't have to be there to take care of him. And she stayed and started a family. She made it and spawned, as they say. And, okay. Uh, and so uh, my one kid, you know, is down there, and we're back in D.C. And Austin was the place, you know what they say, that – finances, familiarity, friends, you know, the different reasons one would be able to move to a different town. Well, I'd, that's the city I'd probably played the most gigs in other than San Francisco and the East coast where I lived. So anyway, Uh we chased the grandkids and the daughter and the two, now two grandkids and a delightful son-in-law. So nice. That's what we did. Now, now, hadn't y'all the, the Commander Cody uh, live from deep in the heart of Texas? That was recorded in Austin, right? That's right. Yeah, we had a big. We we were very. We, as I mentioned, we played Austin probably more than any other town. DC though was a big market for us there because of that big post-war hillbilly explosion of you know DC became the urban center for bluegrass, really. And right. uh, and and anyway, but yeah, and then like you mentioned, the whole. Gatton, Buchanan, uh, kind of redneck uh, jazz, redneck picking. Right, hillbilly jazz, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, we we I, I liked Austin and Austin. And when I moved there, all my old hip, hippie buddies from the Armadillo headquarters days, and when we cut that album in the early seventies, everybody's like, "Oh man, it's not the same town." Well, guess what? It's not the same world. So it's still yeah, a nice yeah. Town. What is the same? Yeah, not yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's you know right. Take it as it comes. And and then so we we were talking about uh, you know what uh, your your plans pre COVID and you were saying that yeah you know I'd been still really hitting it hard on the road for yeah. you know fifty years and and you still had a you know a full schedule of of road dates and uh, you were saying God I don't know why I was doing it I, every year I would say that I was not going to but then I would go and book it all yeah. anyway <laughs> it's a sickness. So, sure. Well, it's a compulsion. It's a, you, a you compulsion. love to do it. It's yeah. you love to do it. So you you do it because you have to, not because you want to. But I do like my job. But I don't. I was just doing it too hard, and you know, and part of it's pride of thinking I'm an, I can do a young man's game as a guy here in my early seventies. You know, and there's no need to prove that. I mean, I've. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was still playing 150 dates a year out there on the road, and. And not with not with a big tour bus and roadies, you know, we're doing sure. a lot of it ourselves, you know, and, and a bunch of festival dates too. So, but I'm glad I found that I was fairly happy staying home. And luckily, my marriage survived me, my wife putting up with me every day for a year, which had never happened. And, you know, I was thought, well, this could go either way. You know? Right, right. Somebody was telling me about uh, seeing you at the Ameripolitan Award Show there in Austin a few years ago, 
and uh, they were saying that that you had saved the show because they had all these these uh, you know classic characters singing singing these songs, and, and he, he said that everybody was supposed to sing a certain song, but they would get up there and they wouldn't remember the words. And you were the guy that uh, (laughs) without embarrassing anyone could step up to the mic and sing the, whatever verse they were missing. And, and that, uh, that in fact, Ray Benson from, from uh, asleep at the wheel made sure everybody in the, in the room understood that, that Bill Kirchin was, you know, the, the, the kind of impact that you'd had. And, and he said something beautiful. He said, you know, without, without the Commander Cody band, he said when, when Commander Cody came out, before that, the, on the radio, it was all Jethro Tull and, and Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. And he said C- Commander Cody and Hot Rod Link and all that stuff blew open the, uh, the American airwaves to American roots music. Yeah, we that's something we did do that I think to a great extent and uh and I'm you know I feel good about that. We you know we weren't we weren't good at sustaining a a, a pop hit career at all, but that's fine. We didn't we didn't ever groom ourselves or our career in that direction. So yeah, Ray was good. Ray just invited me to do a song on his 50th anniversary album because we helped him get started 50 years ago when they first came out to California. We Remember, my wife and I were living in a chicken coop behind that main house where we rehearsed with Gene Vincent, and we eventually moved into an open room in the house, and a couple of the sleep of the wheel moved into the chicken coop. That sounds bad, but it was actually a delightful backyard with fruit trees that ripened, and it was a communal backyard. Uh, and you and, had uh, eggs every day, right? We had eggs every day. We had there was a bunch of uh, Persians next door. We had tumbling pigeons. There was fruit trees, fig trees that ripened in succession. One of the guys worked at the uh, the beer factory. There was a never-ending supply of pounders back now there. did you ever uh, meet uh, like crosby stills nash and you no not a one of them i never not met one a single them? one of those guys and i mean we yeah we weren't we weren't in the topanga canyon crowd at all you know right. we met the eagles because our drummer had well you just met those guys because we were at the troubadour and stuff but our drummer had been in a band with glenn fry back in detroit called the heavy metal kids and this is before heavy metal was a thing mm-hmm. and our wow. bass player actually had been in was offered the job in uh little in little feet and buffalo bruce and so i met hmm. but no we we weren't part of that scene we were and we were also kind of off on our own, we were a big band. We were on the road all the time. I remember uh, we'd meet people we shared the bill with. The Birds, we got to know them when Clarence White was playing with them. Nice. Did you meet Graham Parsons? Never met Graham Parsons. No, uh-uh. Never met oh, him. Oh, wow. So, I, you know, but we... <laughs> but we didn't meet Graham Parsons, but we met Gene Vincent, you know, that kind of there thing. There you go. Yeah. Nice. Well, I bring up uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young because apparently this week is the 50th anniversary of their Deja Vu record. Really? Album. It's been 50 years since then? 50 wow. years, yeah. And they, I wow. saw this great interview uh, like on one of these morning shows. It was like a 10-minute piece about the people in the band and stuff. And, and it's weird because... Now, I don't know what happens with friendships and bands and stuff like that. I, I, I was in a band for maybe two years, and 
I don't talk to anyone in the band yeah, anymore. Yeah, you all hate each other now. <laughs> yeah, we all hate each other. Oh, no. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry, man. But I'm still trying to get the band back together, man. Right, right, right. <laughs> One more tour, dude. Come on, yeah, man. Yeah, uh, but the saddest part of this interview was they, they, they interviewed Nash, they interviewed Crosby, and, and uh, Neil Young didn't want to get interviewed for this thing. Oh, okay. But they talk about uh, the interview. He said, "Do you still talk to members to the guys in the band?" And Nash, and Stills, and Young said in a press release that they all still talk, but no one will talk to Crosby anymore. Oh my they, goodness! They've had it. They've had it with Crosby. They don't want to talk. So the interviewer asked Crosby about it, and Crosby was very like, kind of like, just shrugged it off, and he says. Uh, you know, maybe I'm to blame 50% and they're to blame the other 50%, but I'm not talking to those guys anymore either. Wow. And that's weird, huh? It's yeah. It's weird how that works. I mean, these are guys who are like, you know, were, were there at that time sure. when rock and roll, you know, and that album sold apparently in six in 71 when it was released or whatever, it sold 8 million copies. Holy crinkle. Well, that's a popular record for sure. Yeah, wow. a popular record. And I, I don't know. I mean, I just put it out there because, you know, we have lots of musicians on this show. I mean, pretty much 90% of our guests are musicians. And, and I'm always curious to know, uh, you know, do you, do you like people still? Do you can't stand people anymore? Are there fuckers out there that you'll never work with again and stuff no, like that? No, not with me. I mean... I like I like I'm in, I'm always glad to talk to and still try to keep in touch with every member surviving member of the Cody band. I just talked to uh, George Frain uh, yesterday as a matter of fact. I'm doing a reunion with all the available Lost Planet Airmen. I did that 2 years ago before COVID and last year we had a big festival series of gigs rigged up Well, we can't do that. But uh no, man, I, I'm not. That didn't go down that way with us. And there's one guy in the band who's incommunicado, but I believe, I don't know why that is, and I don't think it's due to animosity. I think that uh, his his uh, lifestyle was getting the best of him, and I believe his wife kind of pulled the plug on him, and probably for everybody's better good. I don't know. He was in sure. a coma? No, 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 not pull the plug on that. Sorry. <laughs> Manny, you go there, don't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> For sure. But anyway, no, I I'm I'm I don't feel that way. I'm life's too short, you know. Nice, nice. Well, Bill, so we're you know we're kind of coming to the the downslope of the podcast. No, no way. I wanted to touch on what you've been doing, uh, you know, in in the past year. So I know you've 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 had a whole series of live streams. You've been doing them every other week, I guess, on Thursdays, and and then you've also been uh, you you have your own Patreon. Uh, page and and you're you're putting out uh, telecaster lessons for all those uh the the telly world talk about that song well i will slightly correct your details it's please do. substantially correct but i've been doing the patreon and uh, not the Patreon. i've been doing the live stream on both facebook and then a, a, a page called um austin city jams so you can get all this off of my website billkirchen.com and that is every other Friday at 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. California. You figure mountain time. I can't be bothered. And sure. uh, but uh, and the Patreon channel, I've signed up and I haven't started yet. I'm embarrassed to tell you. I haven't pushed that off the pier, but I will do that, which will be I'll have. I've been taking notes on how you two professionals do this, and I will be doing <laughs> some interviews, except we'll actually be using people's faces, which I don't know if that's a good or bad. I mean, I'm not going to 
sell many. But at any rate, um, and that I am going to do that, and it's going to be some interviews and some, I, I like to call it the throw another telecaster on the fire and I'll tell you of the time, you know, and, uh, and, and some lessons and some stories and some songs. So, so yeah, all that's in the future. But uh, right, you can catch me a week from, I don't, I don't remember which Friday this is. What, what uh, yeah, is today? A week, a week from this Friday. Or, or a week from, come yeah, out, yeah, yeah, two weeks. Out. Yeah, yeah, it'll come out anyway. They can they can go to uh, BillKirchen.com yeah. and that you know I'll I'll have the link in, in the show notes once again. But it's pretty easy to find you just uh, through a Google search, right? Yep. And so that's what I've been doing, and I'm just starting now to book gigs. I just was talking to some people up there in Wisconsin. I'm going to do a little tour with Red Volkert, one of the great Telecaster players of our generation, right? Uh, and I'm going to, you know, I got a, some Christmas stuff going. So I'm sort of starting to get out there again. Because you just can't stay away from I can't it. stop. <laughs> I like it. I like my job. But I won't be doing, I won't be out there 150 days next year. I guarantee it. Yeah, just do like 100. Just do 100 just do days. 100. Yeah, 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 right on. Right on oh, boy. Well, well, Bill. Next week, uh, I don't know. It's some, somehow we we uh, we we run into certain little uh, um, streams or you know certain patterns with uh, that. I always observe who our guests are. Oddly enough, we have Dave Alvin as our very next guest. Oh, so give him my love, okay? I know he's going to be he's going to be so tickled that uh, you you were the previous guest. He's a wonderful guy and a wonderful winner. He's got an important, he's got a really important spot in the history of Roots music as well. And uh, I've been lucky enough to know him through the years and never shared the stage for a whole gig, but, you know, been able to sit in with each other. And it's always been a great pleasure. He's a great guy. So, Bill, before we sign off. Yes, sir. I always ask this qu a question to our okay. guests. It's, uh, it's kind of what would you rather have? And this is a this is a question I'm going to put to you. All right. Would you rather have to always have to wear wet socks or wet underwear? <laughs> Damn, that's tough. Now, me personally. Wait, don't tell me what you personally would do yet. I didn't, <laughs> did I ask you, Manny? No, I did not. Let me try to think this through on my own. Otherwise, I'll either do exactly what you would or wouldn't do, and I don't even know which I'd do. Right. Um, for some reason, well, for one thing, as a practical guy, I know that wet underwear would dry quicker than wet socks. So I would have to wear, if, if assuming that in this imaginary world they would dry, I would have to go with underwear rather okay. than socks. I would go the same way too. Yeah. What underwear? Well, then I'll go with socks. <laughs> <laughs> That's never. Well, that is that is you know that I don't usually get asked that question. Maybe a few times, so I'll get asked that. But that's not you know. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, somebody asked me that, but never. Yeah. Right. Well, that was very well played, Bill. <laughs> Thank well, you. Bill, Thank you so much. You've been a terrific guest, and uh, man, can't wait to see you again there in Austin or somewhere out on the road there. I thank you both very much, and it's been very entertaining for me. And uh, the time's fun when you're having flies. Here it is, an hour and a half later. So uh, there you go. I right hope on. to see. I hope to see you both live. I hope to see you. In, uh, I'll come down and play Chicky Wawa in New Orleans. And yes, we'll be there in the oh, audience. Wow. I love that. I love that place. All the iguanas will be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. All well, right. Well, say hi to all the iguanas and say hi to 
my buddy, uh, Derek my buddy Derek Houston, Houston yes, my yes. buddy Macon Fry, all those people. Macon Fry's got a new book out, you know. Nice. Okay. All right, you guys, and good luck on your mayoral mayoral uh, campaign. Uh, campaign. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah, all, right. all right. Well, so Bill, in the troubled nation, we always like to say, "Trouble never ends, but the struggle continues." Good night. Thank you, Dan. But something's kind of bothering me. What's that? Well, some people talk a little too much about each other. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it gets the wrong vibe happening. Hmm. Why do you say we set them straight on it? I'm right behind you. Listen up, guys. Here's word to the wise. If someone's stung when you wag your tongue, you better get back down to size. All you chicks, according to Dan Hicks, yeah. if what you gab ain't too fab, might have just to fix There's a saying says you got nothing to say If you can't say nothing real nice So if your words are for the birds You better heed with speed on this advice And I'm the crux of the matter lies Right here and I'll summarize If all you do is criticize Shut up, that's the word to the wise So keep those good thoughts in your head That's a word to the wise A word to the wise